But the victory was overshadowed by an alleged racist taunt involving Goods in the dying minutes. The, incident... the former NRL star spoke publicly about the rape charge against him as he was given this a date. This is Taylor Harris in full flight on the field, but the photo of her at work has sparked a vulgar it was social just something media story. That came out, wasn't even thinking it, wasn't trying to promulgate it, wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. It was simply a slip of the tongue mistake. Two seasons ago, the club only entered teams in the boys' competition. This year, it has enough players for seven girls' teams. Welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr Susan Carland, and today we're asking, what happens if we don't change the culture of sport? It feels like every other week there is an allegation of sexual assault or accusations of racism within our elite sporting clubs. Why does this keep happening? Does the elevation of sporting heroes put them under unreasonable pressure and make them feel they are above the law and community standards? We'll find out how some clubs and codes are taking action and how we can all help create a better sporting culture in our communities and our nations. In this episode, Monash expert Brett Hutchins explains why the hero myth is nothing new. We've been idolising athletes for as long as competitive sport has existed. Brett has been writing and teaching about the social, cultural and political dimensions of sport and media for more than two decades. My name's Professor Brett Hutchins. I'm a Professor of Communications and Media Studies at Monash University. I've got a PhD in sociology and I've been writing about media, political, cultural issues and sport for the past 25 years. Professor Brett Hutchins, thank you for joining us today. Let's jump straight into this issue. Do you think society has always expected its sporting heroes to be exemplary characters? Since the dawn of modern sport, and which of course coincides with the dawn of modern media, newspapers, and you see the two rise together, sports people, and usually men, have performed, you know, roles of either, you know, role models, celebrities, depending on the era. So at that level, they've always performed um, an exemplary role for some and they're a point of condemnation or criticism for others. The fact they are so sort of central or in the public spotlight is what really defines them and and causes... They become really a locus of debate depending on the, the politics of the time and the values of the time. So... During the amateur era, of course, uh, which has a certain class bias towards those who can afford to be amateur, you know, they stand for a certain form of moral virtue, muscular Christianity, um, often tied to sort of issues of religion and uh, particularly around Protestant Catholicism. But these days, of course, we're dealing with the, the, the age of global media, celebrity, you know, hyper-commodification. So you see them becoming commercial, commercial spokespeople and commercial figures as much as everything else. So it shifts over time, but they become a lightning rod for public debate in a lot of ways because they are so visible. But what they're actually saying and doing um, usually requires a, a close look to work out what they actually mean. Is it fair that we put these expectations on sports people? They're just regular people who happen to be very good at sports. They're not moral philosophers or um, philanthropists. If we're talking about sports people right now, um, there is the issue that the leagues have really created a system in which the wages and benefits that flow to athletes are built off a set of commercial claims. 
And that often produces a, the notion of what their role in the community. Now, if you think about the AFL and the NRL and a lot of Cricket Australia, there's this notion that they perform a positive role in the community. And that's really part of their sponsorship pitch, which, of course, then ties to media rights, which ties to revenue. The athletes are the beneficiary of that. For those athletes who are prepared to let go of that remuneration, I would agree with that argument fine. But, other, but you are being tied into a set of expectations that they benefit directly from. I think where things get really interesting is that when they use that platform, which is so powerful from a sort of media and commercial perspective, to actually project political opinions and create more positive forms of social change around things like social justice and so on. So it can cut both ways, but it's very difficult to have the rewards and benefits they get without actually having some expectations come with it. And having sports people uh, try to create positive social change. Is that a recent phenomenon, you know, just a an outshoot of the woke culture that we're part of or is it something that's been around for a lot longer? They've always had expectations read on to them. It's how they use them that's really important. These days we live in a moment where I think social media the various sort of projections of social movements um, and and really what, what occurs through um, what you might call a fragmentation of the public sphere produces a, a set of, uh, of values that, that make sense. Now, the, the criticisms of so-called, you know, sports simply projecting a woke culture, some of the more um, critical voices you'll hear there also forget that these are also the values being projected by sponsors. That sports are simply, I mean, and this is why I think it's a fundamentally conservative relationship, a lot of this. It's its symbolic, but if you actually look, you know, let, let's just take Indigenous round in the AFL. It'd be very hard to argue against um, unless you, you know, don't believe in Indigenous rights, um, which of course I do. It would be very hard to argue against when you think of the personal cost someone like Adam Goods paid um, by being constantly booed. But at the same time, where are the Indigenous coaches? Where are the Indigenous board members? You know, where are, where is, you know, in terms of positions of power and influence and money, where do you see prominent and consistent Indigenous voices? And this is, a, this is where also, I suppose, the criticism from the left comes from, that it is primarily symbolic. It doesn't create material change. I'm particularly in a, a, a pretty irreligious society that we live in. It fulfills a lot of the roles of ritual that we don't have anymore. The coming together of, as people, a collective tribalism, um, the, the euphoria. It sort of brings us, in some ways, religion and war together for people in, in a society when we don't really personally experience either of those anymore. Sport engages the gut and the heart far more than the head. I mean, what, why would anyone sit at a sporting match if you follow a football team which I do we it, your team loses almost every season with a very occasion so there are only these moments of release where one actually gets to feel like a winner so in my case my sporting team hasn't won a premiership in 34 years mm-hmm. I have no expectation it will win any time any soon but I also got hooked like sport tends to because when I was a kid they won four premierships in six years in the suburb I was lived and went to school and thought this was normal but I keep going back for more so and I have a very ambivalent relationship with male contact sport 
by virtue of the fact that, it, you know, it, there's literally two rape cases going on as we speak by rugby league footballers. And I have walked away from the game at different points because it is just so personally repugnant to mm. me what these rather privileged characters seem to get away with in terms – and also the fact that these clubs and leagues, while they are much better than they were, are still yet to consistently express concern or sympathy for the person who is making the accusation. And what, and what happens if we don't fix these problems, these, these issues in the culture of sport – what happens? What does the future of sport look like? We, we are seeing a lot of progress on Indigenous issues, on women's issues, on representation. The, the, the problem of representation is being addressed in a way it hasn't in the past. However, sitting alongside that is a lot of the more entrenched problems, you know, violence against women, particularly by in, in male team sports, usually body contact sports. And that's reasonably consistent around the world. If you, if you look at uh, North American ice hockey, if you look at NFL or American football, you look at college sports, body, all male body contact sports tend to attract, um, really, they, they want, this is, I mean, this is, and if you speak to the people who select young athletes, they want risk takers. They want people who are comfortable with violence. And, and really, you know, if, if one's ever gone on to a, one of these fields, you're putting yourself at pretty substantial, you know, physical risk. It takes a particular mindset to, to want, want that. And we're also relying on people who have a capacity to change their relationship with physical pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've spoken to I've spoken to elite athletes about it, about this. I come from a family that's had elite athletes in it. It's around learning that pain is a good thing, and that is a really difficult thing for most people to understand. Because if you look at it genetically, the, the fear fairies, figures vary, but less than two percent of the population has the capacity to play at the elite level, either for physiological, psychological, like. To basically be given the talent, you, you know, about two percent of the population has the potential, which is also why I think we have some problems in junior sport because you know um, people being pushed into something that isn't really realistic for them is a bit of a problem. But when you take those characteristics, you know, a relationship with pain that pain is good. You take risk taking. You take male camaraderie. You take all, mostly all male environments in which women may serve as physios and perhaps board members, but they're not a regular feature. It produces certain forms of insulation or insensitivity from wider community norms around what appropriate behaviour is. So if we are cultivating this, we are requiring our elite sports people to be aggressive, to welcome pain, to be comfortable inflicting pain on others in, in some capacity in contact sport to be selfish, you have to be selfish to be an elite sports person. How realistic is it expect to how realistic is it for us to expect them to behave the way in which we require them to on the field and then flick a switch and be gentle, calm, good people off the field? It isn't. But that is what we demand of them. So what happens next? The problems will likely continue. If we actually see a change in those who exercise power in sport, particularly away from just former male players who played in an even more violent era, to actually get different voices into clubs, into club rooms, um, in even player agents. Why are there no female player agents? I mean, this is just an extraordinary thing when you think about it. 
Now, players often have a closer relationship with their player agent than they do anyone else these days. They don't talk to journalists and they, they're full-time professionals, so they don't hold down other jobs. If for some reason, being a player agent effectively requires an XY chromosome for some reason. It makes no sense in terms of commercial savvy. So it, really where the need needs to come from is, is around whose voices matter at the level of exercise, decision-making power, at the level of money. This is a professional sport. A lot of this comes back to money, of course. Player unions is really important, which is hard because athletes are often hard to organise politically for the record. You know, individually driven, self-sacrificing, selfish by virtue of what is demanded of their bodies and the discipline and the routines that, are, that, that is required to be successful and the way that we celebrate them for being successful. This is our thing. And also I think it, it talks to a broader awareness among those who are fans that when one is cheering for the big hit, when one is cheering for watching someone, you know, take somebody out, and I follow, you know, I've grown up in a rugby league family. You know, I had a particularly – actually, shame – shame's probably not too strong a word, but there was a, a brawl in the state of origin a few years back where Paul Gallen, a New South Wales captain, punched Nate Miles out of the blue, just absolutely clocked him. And, of course, I smiled and I'm sitting next to my – you know, I'm sitting on the lounge with my son and he's got a look of horror on his face. And this is what I mean. It's like I grew up playing the game. This is the brawls, the biff. This is part of what the, the way the game is commercialised and promoted. And it's around changing what we value and fans understanding that if you are going to celebrate that player, you might not want to then criticise too much when they can't turn it off off the field. But the majority of male sports stars don't do these things. Majority of our AFL or NRL players are not involved in rape cases or sexual assault cases. So there clearly is the capacity to be excellent on the field and not a jerk off the field. That's right. And this is my question. And this is the other thing that is missing in the public responses to allegations of sexual assault and rape. Where are the other players coming out against the player for putting themselves in that position? I wonder if that's actually the biggest role, the, the peer role. Other guys saying this isn't, this isn't what we do. And it's completely lacking, at least in a public sense. The problem is, is with team sports, it's about bonding, sticking by your mate. And fans feel the same way. It's stunning to me that someone who can be so aware of these issues in other areas, so let's say sexual harassment in the workplace, incredibly aware, incredibly strong. But the moment this comes up around someone in their football team, the benefit of the doubt needs to be given to the player. This hasn't been proven. It's like, well, yes, it hasn't been proven. But what is it about the fact that these situations keep occurring? There is a statistical correlation between their frequency and the fact that footballers tend to be involved in them. When are we going to address when – when are players going to actually speak up or can express concern for the victim? And all Because that would be betraying a mate. Mm. And the language of sport is quite powerful in this sense. Um, you know, coaches – you know, and wanting teams to stay together, you know, because really having, you know, a lack of conflict in a team is, of course, absolutely essential to success. So at one level, the things we value, the things we, I suppose, um, exalt in sport, which is teamwork, becomes a negative at the moment where someone in the team is placed themselves in a situation where someone has been quite badly hurt 
Now, who's guilty legally or not? But someone has been badly hurt. And where is the concern for the person who's been hurt? And seriously, are we really still at the point of believing that every allegation is false? So the constant things around slut-shaming, she was asking for it, she was hot. You're seeing them play out in the court cases right at this moment. Where, in fact, as we know in the way the legal system works, effectively the person bringing the charge ends up being the one on trial. You know, what, what are we still, Jodie Foster in the accused in the 80s? These tropes still play out. And the only way I see them playing, is a, changing, as I said, is through, as I say, powerful voices, player agents and athletes actually being prepared to speak out. And, the, and, and one thing I am probably quite correctly criticised for is, of course, the sense that I blame all players, you know. And I'm saying you can't claim to be part of a collective, part of a team, part of a group, and then just opt out when it suits. You know, stick to your principles, you know own the problem, try and work out. You know, and one of the most, beyond people like Meg Lanning and Elise Perry, particularly in cricket, but one of the really most important voices in Australian sport in the last five to ten years, I think, is David Pocock, the Australian rugby union player, who, you know, is called out literally homophobia in the middle of a game, stopped the game to make a complaint, Mm -hmm. has been prepared to wear the principles when he won his first Man of the Match Award, playing for the Perth, Perth uh, Western Force, went and then bought sleeping bags for the homeless and went and handed them out around the city that very evening. You know, of course there are great people in sport. There are great people in every sector of society. But it's this question, does, having, does the knowledge that all these players are good and not everyone's doing this, is that enough cover? Does that then excuse that problem? when we know that there is a minority who are doing it, who are coming from the same group. And how many other sectors of society wouldn't we demand better from? If it was happening in universities, which it has been, if you think about allegations of rape on campus, universities have been absolutely not only forced to change but cooperate and willing to change because it's a problem that needs to be addressed. People are being hurt and particularly women. So, you know, we are seeing progress in LGBTQI rights, you know, Dressing rooms are changing. There is greater acceptance there. As it turns out, you know, there may have actually been some gay footballers in the history of football. Go figure. But, you know, I think there is still a long way to play in terms of sport owning its social responsibility when it claims to play a positive social role. And until it deals with that tension, I don't believe the change will come in the way it needs to. Professor Brett Hutchins, thank you very much for today. You're welcome. Ruth Jeans is an Associate Professor within the Faculty of Education. She's a social scientist who researches how sport can help address social exclusion among marginalised groups. While there has been some positive progress recently, Ruth says there is more work to be done to address gender disparity in elite sport. Hi, I'm Ruth Jeans. I'm an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at Monash University and um, my research looks at community sport and inclusion and diversity within community sport. Ruth Jeans, so nice to meet you. It's lovely to meet you, Susan. Thank you. Let's talk about sport. Where do you think we are in Australia in terms of how well we are doing the inclusivity of sport? 
I think we've been making some really great strides in terms of inclusivity in sport, but there's still some way to go. And um, I think the last couple of years really have, have illustrated that and some of the, the issues um, with inclusion in sport. So particularly if we um, start at the elite level and we've seen you know some fantastic uh, developments in, in women's professional sport and the, the establishment of the AFLW, um, greater profile for things like the Super Netball League um, and, you know, real sort of development of, of women's sport, which is, is great. Um, but also that's highlighted the issues there in terms of pay disparities for women, women having access to, to equal rights and things like maternity leave and um, all the things that go along with um, being a professional in the sports sense. So steps forward, but equally work to do. And um, over the, the last year, the, the Black Lives Matters movement has really highlighted some of the cracks and significant issues, particularly in relation to racism that's happening within sport and continues to happen. So, again, whilst we've, we've come forward and we've made some massive leaps in terms of embracing all sorts of different people within sporting contexts, um, there's still a lot to be done if we're going to say that sport is truly inclusive and, and open and available to everyone. Mm. If we continue on in the way that we are with our attitudes towards sport and the role that it does play in inclusivity or its attitudes towards gender or race or homophobia or anything like that, if we travel down that path for the next, say, 50 or 100 years, what will the future of sport look like in Australia? Is it in a good place? Um, I mean, I, I think it is in terms of if you look at historical progress, we've come a long way in the last 50 years and you'd like to hope that we will continue to do that. And there's, I think there's strong foundations now in Australia to do that with the increasing awareness of the fact that sport isn't always inclusive to everyone and a recognition that we need to do more to make sure that it is. Um, but, you know, you'd like to see that, um, you know, women's and men's sport is treated equally and seen equally and viewed equally within mm. the next 50 years and that there isn't these huge disparities in things like pay and profile and the attention given. Um and equally, things like um, homophobia and the um, prevalence of, of homophobic behaviour within sporting contexts, you'd expect that that should go um, with increasingly progressive attitudes in society more broadly. Mm. But I think the key thing that we've seen in sporting, it can be quite resistant to change and it is very traditional and, and it comes from a background of predominantly being run, organised and played by white middle-class men and um, we need to continue to work to, to change that. So I think there's a, a good foundation there, but um, as has been shown with high-profile incidents of, of racism, um, of various sort of scandals in relation to, to cheating and, and things that have, have hit Australian sport within the last couple of years... There's still a lot to do there and, and we need to be proactive in making those changes happen. Do you think we have an unfair expectation on our sporting codes or our sporting clubs in that in the end sports is just about sporting success? A team wants to win or a runner wants to run as fast as they can or, or whatever it is. Um, 
and yet we're expecting them to be a place where we prosecute and solve the biggest social issues of our time. You know, racism exists in our society. Sexism exists, unfortunately, in our society. Cheating exists outside of sport. Do we put too much pressure on sport to solve these issues when society hasn't solved them? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it sort of speaks to the the inherent nature of sport as well in that it is competitive and mm. that's what we love about it and there are winners and losers within that. So as a sort of cultural phenomenon, it doesn't speak naturally to inclusion and um, supporting you know diversity and, and everyone having opportunity because by its nature it, it is there's, a, there's winners and there's losers within it. So I think you're absolutely right and there is this tension there in terms of what sport actually is but I think also just the the position that sport holds within society and particularly the position it holds within Australian culture is is such a significant cultural phenomenon that it has a responsibility as that cultural arena to to do more and um, to not be a mirror of issues that are happening in wider society, but actually to be um, something that can act as a resource to change those problems and change um, those exclusions and inequalities that exist within wider society. But also I, I think as well in saying that, you know, sport is sometimes behind in terms of how attitudes have progressed more widely within society. How so? Um, so I think, as say, um, we look at the issues of, of homophobia and homophobic banter that's pretty commonplace within particularly male sporting environments and male team sporting environments. Um, and that sort of behaviour just wouldn't generally be tolerated now in, in many workplaces and... Um, would you know would have been picked up on and and wouldn't have been allowed so I think there's certain ways that sport is behind and it has a responsibility to to catch up with the rest of society and you know to address those issues as such an important um, phenomena in, in our community and in our culture. Let's talk about um, sports people who are expected to represent more than one community. So mm. our female sports stars, but I'm also thinking of some of our Indigenous sports stars. Mm. There seems to be an extra burden on them to be particularly good and particularly nice and particularly represent their community and break down barriers and all these sort of many things that we don't expect of the average white male sports star. Yeah. What does that pressure do to those sports Stars. Oh, I think it's incredibly intense, and we, you know we have multiple examples of this. You can sort of look at the you know the extraordinary pressure on Kathy Freeman and the Sydney Olympics is one example of bridging communities in terms of um, you know representing Indigenous communities and our first peoples, and um, also as a woman and a, an elite athlete as a woman, um, Adam Goods and the AFL. Um, obviously is another sort of high example and um, some of our, our female cricketers, Alex Blackwell, um, who is openly gay and a highly successful female athlete and has advocated for a number of social issues. Um, 
in terms of those athletes that are sort of working at those intersections, yeah, there's incredible pressure because they they have their sort of identity as a a female or a person of colour and and the the expectations of their community of sort of being a champion and being a role model. And I think it is sort of expected that, you know, because they are from a marginalised identity, they they will come forward and they'll stand up for social issues and they'll be more willing to do so um, without thinking particularly about the pressure on them to do that, that they've had to fight really hard to get where they are to begin with. And we're then sort of expecting them to take on the fight further and to put the cause um, out there further and champion. And and it's exhausting, you know, and I guess obviously what happened with Adam Goods is the the prime example of that and the, the toll it can take and the extreme negative impact it can have on individuals. But um, I think, again, if we're sort of looking at certain intersections and there's there's been a lot of sort of uh, issues raised about the lack of openly gay professional male athletes mm. and potentially is that pressure that if you are going to come out as a gay male professional athlete you're going to carry the burden of being the trailblazer and having to advocate and put that out there that just puts people off wanting to do it you know because it is such a strong expectation and it is so exhausting on top of everything else you're trying to do as a professional athlete. Are there any positive um, examples or studies anything else you know about that's that shows how well diversity and inclusion can be done in the sporting world? Um, there's been quite a lot of research looking particularly at the community level of how we can engage with diversity and inclusion within community sport and I think the the key thing there is that it is generally all driven from the bottom up it's driven by passionate volunteers it's driven by those individuals that are in the minority wanting to make change so you know at that sort of community club level fantastic examples of um parents with children with disabilities getting onto their committees at their sports clubs and driving through change mm. where they develop teams for young people with disabilities and you know making that a really strong part of the club and just an everyday part that you know young people with disabilities will be catered for mm. um, seeing clubs that have sort of overhauled their committee structures and brought more women on um, and made sure they've got representation of women of, of people of color and just really tried to diversify their sporting structures so I think at that sort of grassroots local level it's happening all the time Mm. um there's also um I mean I I think you can see it uh, permeating through at the elite level in terms of the development of the new leagues the AFLW as I mentioned earlier we are starting to see a bit more profile of um women in the sports media now, um, female commentators. um, Mel Jones has been prolific in the cricket space Mm. and, you know, really showing um, the expertise that women can bring and offer in there. So I think those sorts of things are starting to make changes and um, within that sort of structural level of sport and within the governing bodies, starting to see, again, recognition that... um, we need more diversity in the sort of 
on sort of the, the boards and within the structures that govern sport and trying to put through legislation that makes that happen. So um, sporting boards now requiring a, a quota of women on the boards is a shouldn't be necessary but is an important step forward in trying to make that happen um seeing in things like coach education which is vital offering courses um football federation australia have started offering courses now for females only to try and encourage and engage more women coaches onto um coach education programs so there are pockets i think and examples of you know good practice what we say is good practice and really um starting to recognise that there's problems and we need to be proactive, but it's it's still quite sporadic and I think a lot of it is driven by marginalised groups and, and from the, the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, seeing some sort of significant um, community organisations come um, into practice the last couple of years, so organisations like Proud to Play, which is really advocating strongly for LGBTI rights within the sport context, again, has come from the LGBTI community and driven that and sort of is making sports um, associations take notice and recognise that there's issues there. Um, Things like Siren Sport, which is really promoting women's voices within the media um, and doing some some great work there. So... um, there are these sort of you know different organisations that are popping up and different practices, but it it's it's not necessarily top down. It's mm. sort of the the marginalised and excluded themselves getting a voice and starting to come forward to make change in sport. Why do you think this matters so much? If things are amplified through sport I do think it can lead to sort of changes and greater recognition within wider society as well and I mean just on sort of the some of the benefits of sport participation there is good evidence to show that it assists with things like social connection feelings of belonging um, feelings of social inclusion there's mental and physical health benefits associated but only when it's done in a, a welcoming and mm. supportive environment. So, um, you know, it's along with many other things within society, it has the potential to make significant benefits to people in the community. Um, and those benefits should be available to anyone, anyone that wants to engage. And regardless of, you know, your ability, your background, your identity, um, where you come from, you should have access to that and at the moment that's that's not always the case so i think yeah that that to me is why it's it's really significant because it is such a powerful cultural arena it has the opportunity to shift and influence and make change and it provides such important benefits to those that engage with it ruth jeans thank you so much for your time today thank you That's it for this episode. We'll be back next time to explore how new research, more support for players and starting with something as simple as the language we use can help drive change. I'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.